Article 12 of the Defense of the Augsburg Confession by Philip Melanchthon Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Mass, Augustana 24 At the outset we must again make the preliminary statement that we do not abolish the Mass, but religiously maintain and defend it. For among us Masses are celebrated every Lord's Day, and on other festivals in which the sacrament is offered to those who wish to use it, after they have been examined and absolved. And the usual public ceremonies are observed, the series of lessons, of prayers, vestments, and other like things. The adversaries have a long declamation concerning the use of the Latin language in the Mass, in which they absurdly trifle as to how it profits, what a great merit is achieved by an unlearned hearer to hear in the faith of the Church a Mass which he does not understand. They evidently imagine that the mere work of hearing is a service that it profits without being understood. We are unwilling to malignantly pursue these things, but we leave them to the judgment of the reader. We mention them only for the purpose of stating in passing that also among us the Latin lessons and prayers are retained. Since ceremonies, however, ought to be observed both to teach men scripture, and that those admonished by the word may conceive faith and fear of God and obtain comfort, and thus also may pray, for these are the designs of ceremonies, we retain the Latin language on account of those who are learning and understand Latin and we mingle with it German hymns, in order that the people also may have something to learn, by which faith and fear may be called forth. This custom has always existed in the churches. For although some more frequently, and others more rarely, introduced German hymns, nevertheless the people almost everywhere sang something in their own tongue. Therefore this is not such a new departure. It has, however, nowhere been written or represented that the act of hearing lessons not understood profits men, or that ceremonies profit, not because they teach or admonish, but ex opere operato, because they are thus performed or are looked upon. Away with such pharisaic opinions. Ye sophists ought to be heartily ashamed of such dreams. The fact that we hold only public or common mass, at which people also commune, not private mass, is no offense against the church Catholic. For in the Greek churches even today private masses are not held, but there is only a public mass, and that on the Lord's Day and festivals. In the monasteries daily mass is held, but this is only public. These are the traces of former customs. For nowhere do the ancient writers before Gregory make mention of private masses. We now omit noticing the nature of their origin. It is evident that after the mendicant monks began to prevail from most false opinions, and on account of gain, they were so increased that all good men for a long time desired some limit to this thing. Although St. Francis wished to provide a right for this matter, as he decided that each fraternity should be content with a single common mass daily, afterwards this was changed, either by superstition or for the sake of gain. Thus, where it is of advantage, they themselves change the institutions of the fathers. And afterwards they cite against us the authority of the fathers. Epiphanius writes that in Asia the communion was celebrated three times a week, and that there were no daily masses. And indeed, he says that this custom was handed down from the apostles. For he speaks thus, 
Assemblies for communion were appointed by the apostles to be held on the fourth day, on Sabbath eve, and on the Lord's day. Moreover, although the adversaries collect many testimonies on this topic to prove that the Mass is a sacrifice, yet this great tumult of words will be quieted when the single reply is advanced that this line of authorities, reasons, and testimonies, however long, does not prove that the Mass confers grace ex opera operato, or that when applied on behalf of others it merits for them the remission of venial and mortal sins, of guilt and punishment. This one reply overthrows all objections of the adversaries, not only in this confutation, but in all writings which they have published concerning the Mass. And this is the issue, the principal question, of the case of which our readers are to be admonished as Iskines admonished the judges that just as boxers contend with one another for their position, so they should strive with their adversary concerning the controverted point, and not permit him to wander beyond the case. In the same manner our adversaries ought to be here compelled to speak on the subject presented, and when the controverted point has been thoroughly understood, a decision concerning the arguments on both sides will be very easy. For in our confession we have shown that we hold that the Lord's Supper does not confer grace ex opere operato, and that when applied on behalf of others, alive or dead, it does not merit for them ex opere operato the remission of sins, of guilt, or of punishment. And of this position a clear and firm proof exists in that it is impossible to obtain the remission of our sins on account of our own work ex opere operato, even when there is not a good thought in the heart. But the terrors of sin and death must be overcome by faith, when we comfort our hearts with the knowledge of Christ, and believe that for Christ's sake we are forgiven, and that the merits and righteousness of Christ are granted us. Romans 5.1. Being justified by faith, we have peace. These things are so sure and so firm that they can stand against all the gates of hell. If we are to say only as much as is necessary, the case has already been stated for no sane man can approve the Pharisaic and heathen opinion concerning the opus operatum. And nevertheless this opinion inheres in the people, and has increased infinitely the number of masses. For masses are purchased to appease God's wrath, and by this work they wish to obtain the remission of guilt and of punishment. They wish to procure whatever is necessary in every kind of life, health, riches, prosperity, and success in business. They wish even to liberate the dead. Monks and sophists have taught this Pharisaic opinion in the Church. But although our case has already been stated, yet because the adversaries foolishly pervert many passages of Scripture to the defense of their errors, we shall add a few things on this topic. In the Confutation they have said many things concerning sacrifice, although in our confession we purposely avoided this term on account of its ambiguity. We have set forth what those persons whose abuses we condemn now understand as a sacrifice. Now, in order to explain the passages of Scripture that have been wickedly perverted, it is necessary in the beginning to set forth what a sacrifice is. Already for an entire period of ten years the adversaries have published almost infinite volumes concerning sacrifice, and yet not one of them has thus far given a definition of sacrifice. They only seize upon the name sacrifices, either from the Scriptures or the Fathers, and where they find it in the concordances of the Bible, apply it here, whether it fits or not. 
Afterward they append their own dreams, as though, indeed, a sacrifice signifies whatever pleases them. What a sacrifice is, and what are the species of sacrifice? Now, lest we plunge blindly into this business, we must indicate in the first place a distinction as to what is and what is not a sacrifice. To know this is expedient and good for all Christians. Socrates, in the Phaedrus of Plato, says that he is especially fond of divisions, because without these nothing can either be explained or understood in speaking. And if he discovers any one skillful in making divisions, he says that he attends and follows his footsteps as those of a god. And he instructs the one dividing to separate the members in their very joints, lest, like an unskillful cook, he break to pieces some member. But the adversaries wonderfully despise these precepts, and, according to Plato, are truly kakoi mageroi, poor butchers, since they break the members of sacrifice, as can be understood when we have enumerated the species of sacrifice. Theologians are rightly accustomed to distinguish between a sacrament and a sacrifice. Therefore let the genus comprehending both of these be either a ceremony or a sacred work. A sacrament is a ceremony or work in which God presents to us that which the promise annexed to the ceremony offers. As baptism is a work, not which we offer to God, but in which God baptizes us, that is, a minister in the place of God. And here God offers and presents the remission of sins, and so forth, according to the promise, Mark 16:16, 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. A sacrifice, on the contrary, is a ceremony or work which we render God in order to afford Him honor. Moreover, the proximate species of sacrifice are two, and there are no more. One is the propitiatory sacrifice, that is, a work which makes satisfaction for guilt and punishment, that is, one that reconciles God or appeases God's wrath, or which merits the remission of sins for others. The other species is the Eucharistic sacrifice, which does not merit the remission of sins or reconciliation, but is rendered by those who have been reconciled. In order that we may give thanks or return gratitude for the remission of sins that has been received, or for other benefits received. These two species of sacrifice we ought specially to have in view and placed before the eyes in this controversy, as well as in many other discussions. And a special care must be taken, lest they be confounded. But if the limits of this book would suffer it, we would add the reasons for this division. For it has many testimonies in the Epistle to the Hebrews and elsewhere, and all Levitical sacrifices can be referred to these members as to their own homes, genera. For in the law certain sacrifices were named propitiatory on account of their signification or similitude, not because they merited the remission of sins before God, but because they merited the remission of sins according to the righteousness of the law, in order that those for whom they were made might not be excluded from that commonwealth from the people of Israel. Therefore they are called sin offerings and burnt offerings for a trespass whereas the Eucharistic sacrifices were the oblation, the drink-offering, thank-offerings, first-fruits, tithes. Thus there have been in the law emblems of the true sacrifice, but in fact there has been only one propitiatory sacrifice in the world, 
namely, the death of Christ, as the epistle to the Hebrews 10.4 teaches. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And a little after, of the obedience and will of Christ, 10.10, by the which will we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Isaiah interprets the law in order that we may know that the death of Christ is truly a satisfaction for our sins or expiation, and that the ceremonies of the law are not. Wherefore he says, Isaiah 53.10, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed, and so forth. For the word employed here, a sham, signifies a victim for transgression, which signified in the law that a certain victim was to come to make satisfaction for our sins and reconcile God, in order that men might know that God wishes to be reconciled to us not on account of our own righteousness, but on account of the merits of another, namely of Christ. Paul interprets the same word, asham, as sin, Romans 8.3. For sin, God condemned sin, that is, he punished sin for sin, that is, by a victim for sin. The significance of the word can be more easily understood from the customs of the heathen, which, we see, have been received from the misunderstood expressions of the fathers. The Latins called a victim that which, in great calamities, where God seemed to be especially enraged, was offered to appease God's wrath, a piaculum, and they sometimes sacrificed human victims, perhaps because they had heard that a human victim would appease God for the entire human race. The Greeks sometimes called them catharmata, and sometimes parapsamata. Isaiah and Paul, therefore, mean that Christ became a victim, that is, an expiation, that by his merits and not by our own God might be reconciled. Therefore let this remain established in the case, namely, that the death of Christ alone is truly a propitiatory sacrifice. For the Levitical propitiatory sacrifices were so called only to signify a future expiation. On account of a certain resemblance, therefore, they were satisfactions redeeming the righteousness of the law, lest those persons who sinned should be excluded from the commonwealth. But after the revelation of the gospel, and after the true sacrifice has been accomplished, they had to cease. And because they had to cease in the revelation of the gospel, they were not truly propitiations, since the gospel was promised for this very reason, namely to set forth a propitiation. Now, the rest are Eucharistic sacrifices, which are called sacrifices of praise, Leviticus 3, 1 and following, 7, 11 and following, Psalm 56, 12 and following, namely, the preaching of the gospel, faith, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, the afflictions of saints, yea, all good works of saints. These sacrifices are not satisfactions for those making them, or applicable on behalf of others, so as to merit for these ex opera operato the remission of sins or reconciliation. For they are made by those who have been reconciled. And such are the sacrifices of the New Testament, as Peter teaches, 1 Peter 2.5, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices, however, are contrasted not only with those of cattle, but even with human works offered ex opera operato, because spiritual refers to the movements of the Holy Ghost in us. Paul teaches the same thing, Romans 12.1, Present your bodies 
a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service signifies, however, a service in which God is known and apprehended by the mind, as happens in the movements of fear and trust towards God. Therefore it is opposed not only to the Levitical service, in which cattle are slain, but also to a service in which a work is imagined to be offered ex opere operato. The Epistle to the Hebrews 13.15 teaches the same thing. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. And he adds the interpretation, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. He bids us offer praises, that is, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, and the like. These avail not ex opere operato, but on account of faith. This is taught by the clause, By him let us offer, that is, by faith in Christ. In short, the worship of the New Testament is spiritual, that is, it is the righteousness of faith in the heart and the fruits of faith. It accordingly abolishes the Levitical services. In the New Testament no offering avails ex opera operato, sine bono motu utentis, that is, on account of the work, without a good thought in the heart. And Christ says, John 4, 23, 24, True worshippers shalt worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, that is, from the heart, with heartfelt fear and cordial faith. This passage clearly condemns, as absolutely devilish, pharisaical, and anti-Christian, opinions concerning sacrifices which they imagine avail ex opere operato, and teaches that men ought to worship in spirit, that is, with the dispositions of the heart and by faith. The Jews also did not understand their ceremonies aright, and imagined that they were righteous before God when they had wrought works ex opere operato. Against this the prophets contend with the greatest earnestness. Accordingly, the prophets also in the Old Testament condemn the opinion of the people concerning the opus operatum, and teach the righteousness and sacrifices of the Spirit, Jeremiah 7, 22-23. For I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and so forth. How do we suppose that the Jews received this arraignment, which seems to conflict openly with Moses? For it was evident that God had given the Father's commands concerning burnt offerings and victims. But Jeremiah condemns the opinion concerning sacrifices which God had not delivered, namely, that these services should please him ex opere operato. But he adds concerning faith that God had commanded this, Hear me, that is, believe me that I am your God, that I wish to become thus known when I pity and aid, neither have I need of your victims. Believe that I wish to be God the Justifier and Saviour, not on account of works, but on account of my word and promise, truly and from the heart seek and expect aid from me. Psalm 50, 13 and 15, which rejects the victims and requires prayer, also condemns the opinion concerning the opus operatum. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, and so forth? Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. 
the psalmist testifies that this is true service, that this is true honor, if we call upon him from the heart. Likewise, Psalm 46, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears thou hast opened, that is, thou hast offered to me thy word that I might hear it, and thou dost require that I believe thy word and thy promises, that thou truly desirest to pity, to bring aid, and so forth. Likewise, Psalm 51, 16 and 17, Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Likewise, Psalm 4, 5, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness, and put your trust, hope, Vulgate, in the Lord. He bids us hope, and says that this is a righteous sacrifice, signifying that other sacrifices are not true and righteous sacrifices. And Psalm 116, 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifices of thanksgiving, and will call upon the name of the Lord. They call invocation a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But Scripture is full of such testimonies as teach that sacrifices ex opere operato do not reconcile God. Accordingly, the New Testament, since Levitical services have been abrogated, teaches that new and pure sacrifices will be made, namely, faith, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, and the preaching of the gospel, afflictions on account of the gospel, and the like. And of these sacrifices Malachi 1.11 speaks, From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. The adversaries perversely apply this passage to the Mass, and quote the authority of the Fathers. The reply, however, is easy, for even if it spoke most particularly of the Mass, it would not follow that the Mass justifies ex opere operato, or that when applied to others it merits the remission of sins, and so forth. The prophet says nothing of those things which the monks and sophists impudently fabricate. Besides, the very words of the prophet express his meaning. For they first say this, namely, that the name of the Lord will be great. This is accomplished by the preaching of the gospel. For through this the name of Christ is made known, and the mercy of the Father promised in Christ is recognized. The preaching of the gospel produces faith in those who receive the gospel. They call upon God, they give thanks to God, they bear afflictions for their confession, they produce good works for the glory of Christ. Thus the name of the Lord becomes great among the Gentiles. Therefore incense and a pure offering signify not a ceremony ex opere operato, not the ceremony of the Mass alone, but all those sacrifices through which the name of the Lord becomes great, namely faith, invocation, the preaching of the gospel, confession, and so forth. And if any one would have this term embrace the ceremony of the Mass, we readily concede it, provided he neither understands the ceremony alone, nor teaches that the ceremony profits ex opere operato. For just as among the sacrifices of praise, that is, among the praises of God, we include the preaching of the word, so the reception itself of the Lord's Supper can be praise or thanksgiving, but it does not justify ex opere operato. Neither is it to be applied to others so as to merit for them the remission of sins. But after a while we shall explain how even a ceremony is a sacrifice. 
Yet, as Malachi speaks of all the services of the New Testament, and not only of the Lord's Supper, likewise, as he does not favor the Pharisaic opinion of the opus operatum, he is not against us, but rather aids us. For he requires services of the heart, through which the name of the Lord becomes truly great. Another passage also is cited from Malachi 3.3, And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. This passage clearly requires the sacrifices of the righteous, and hence does not favor the opinion concerning the opus operatum. But the sacrifices of the sons of Levi, that is, of those teaching in the New Testament, are the preaching of the gospel, and the good fruits of preaching, as Paul says, Romans 15.16, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, that is, that the Gentiles might be offerings acceptable to God by faith, and so forth. For in the law the slain of victims signified both the death of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, by which this oldness of flesh should be mortified, and the new and eternal life be begun in us. But the adversaries everywhere perversely apply the name sacrifice to the ceremony alone. They omit the preaching of the gospel, faith, prayer, and similar things, although the ceremony has been established on account of these. And the New Testament ought to have sacrifices of the heart, and not ceremonials for sin that are to be performed after the manner of the Levitical priesthood. They cite also the daily sacrifice. Compare Exodus 29, 38 and following, Daniel 8, 11 and following, 12, 11. That just as in the law there was a daily sacrifice, so the Mass ought to be a daily sacrifice of the New Testament. The adversaries have managed well if we permit ourselves to be overcome by allegories. It is evident, however, that allegories do not produce firm proofs, that in matters so highly important before God, we must have a sure and clear word of God, and not introduce by force obscure and foreign passages. Such uncertain explanations do not stand the test of God's judgment. Although we indeed readily suffer the Mass to be understood as a daily sacrifice, provided that the entire Mass be understood, that is, the ceremony with the preaching of the gospel, faith, invocation, and thanksgiving. For these joined together are a daily sacrifice of the New Testament, because the ceremony of the Mass, or the Lord's Supper, was instituted on account of these things, neither is it to be separated from these things. Paul says accordingly, 1 Corinthians 11.26, As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. But it in no way follows from this Levitical type that a ceremony justifying ex opere operato is necessary, or ought to be applied on behalf of others, that it may merit for them the remission of sins. And the type aptly represents not only the ceremony, but also the preaching of the gospel. In Numbers 28, 4 and following, three parts of that daily sacrifice are represented, the burning of the lamb, the libation, and the oblation of wheat flour. The law had pictures or shadows of future things. Accordingly, in this spectacle, Christ and the entire worship of the New Testament are portrayed. The burning of the Lamb signifies the death of Christ. The libation signifies that everywhere in the entire world, by the preaching of the gospel, believers are sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. 
that is, sanctified, as Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 2, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The oblation of wheat flour signifies faith, prayer, and thanksgiving in hearts. As, therefore, in the Old Testament the shadow is perceived, so in the New the thing signified should be sought, and not another type as sufficient for a sacrifice. Therefore, although a ceremony is a memorial of Christ's death, nevertheless it alone is not the daily sacrifice. But the memory itself is the daily sacrifice, that is, preaching and faith, which truly believes that by the death of Christ God has been reconciled. A libation is required, that is, the effect of preaching, in order that, being sprinkled by the gospel with the blood of Christ, we may be sanctified as those put to death and made alive. Oblations also are required, that is, thanksgiving, confessions, and afflictions. Thus the Pharisaic opinion of the opus operatum being cast aside, let us understand that spiritual worship and a daily sacrifice of the heart are signified, because in the New Testament the substance of good things should be sought for, as Paul says, In the Old Testament is the shadow of things to come, but the body and the truth is in Christ, that is, the Holy Ghost, mortification, and quickening. From these things it is sufficiently apparent that the type of the daily sacrifice testifies nothing against us, but rather for us, because we seek for all the parts signified by the daily sacrifice. We have clearly shown all the parts that belong to the daily sacrifice in the law of Moses, that it must mean a true cordial offering, not an opus operatum. The adversaries falsely imagine that the ceremony alone is signified, and not also the preaching of the gospel, mortification, and quickening of heart, and so forth, which is the best part of the Mass, whether they call it a sacrifice or anything else. Now, therefore, good men will be able to judge readily that the complaint against us that we abolish the daily sacrifice is most false. Experience shows what sort of Antiochy they are who hold power in the Church, who, under the pretext of religion, assume to themselves the kingdom of the world, and who rule without concern for religion and the teaching of the gospel, who wage war like kings of the world, and have instituted new services in the church. For in the Mass the adversaries retain only the ceremony, and publicly apply this to sacrilegious gain. Afterward, they feign that this work, as applied on behalf of others, merits for them grace and all good things. In their sermons they do not teach the gospel, they do not console consciences, they do not show that sins are freely remitted for Christ's sake, but they set forth the worship of saints, human satisfactions, human traditions, and by these they affirm that men are justified before God. And although some of these traditions are manifestly godless, nevertheless they defend them by violence. If any preachers wish to be regarded more learned, they treat of philosophical questions, which neither the people nor even those who propose them understand. Lastly, those who are more tolerable teach the law and say nothing concerning the righteousness of faith. The adversaries in the confutation make a great ado concerning the desolation of churches, namely, that the altars stand unadorned, without candles and without images. These trifles they regard as ornaments to churches 
although it is not true that we abolish all such outward ornaments. Yet even if it were so, Daniel is not speaking of such things as are altogether external and do not belong to the Christian church. It is a far different desolation which Daniel 11.31, 12.11 means, namely ignorance of the gospel. For the people, overwhelmed by the multitude and variety of traditions and opinions, were in no way able to embrace the sum of Christian doctrine. For the adversaries preach mostly of human ordinances, whereby consciences are led from Christ to confidence in their own works. For who of the people ever understood the doctrine of repentance of which the adversaries treat? And yet this is the chief topic of Christian doctrine. Consciences were tormented by the enumeration of offenses and by satisfactions. Of faith, by which we freely receive the remission of sins, no mention whatever was made by the adversaries. Concerning the exercises of faith, struggling with despair, and the free remission of sins for Christ's sake, all the books and all the sermons of the adversaries were silent, worse than worthless, and moreover caused untold damage. To these the horrible profanation of the masses and many other godless services in the churches were added. This is the desolation which Daniel describes. On the contrary, by the favor of God, the priests among us attend to the ministry of the word, treat the gospel concerning the blessings of Christ, and show that the remission of sins occurs freely for Christ's sake. This doctrine brings sure consolation to consciences. The doctrine of the Ten Commandments and good works which God commands is also added. The worth and use of the sacraments are declared. But if the use of the sacrament would be the daily sacrifice, nevertheless we would retain it rather than the adversaries, because with them priests hired for pay use the sacrament. With us there is a more frequent and more conscientious use, for the people use it, but after having first been instructed and examined. For men are taught concerning the true use of the sacrament that it was instituted for the purpose of being a seal and testimony of the free remission of sins, and that, accordingly, it ought to admonish alarmed consciences to be truly confident and believe that their sins are freely remitted. Since, therefore, we retain both the preaching of the gospel and the lawful use of the sacrament, the daily sacrifice remains with us. And if we must speak of the outward appearance, Attendance upon church is better among us than among the adversaries, for the audiences are held by useful and clear sermons. But neither the people nor the teachers have ever understood the doctrine of the adversaries. There is nothing that so attaches the people to the church as good preaching, but our adversaries preach their people out of the churches, for they teach nothing of the necessary parts of Christian doctrine. They narrate the legends of saints and other fables and the true adornment of the churches is godly, useful, and clear doctrine, the devout use of the sacraments, ardent prayer, and the like. Candles, golden vessels, tapers, altar-cloths, images, and similar adornments are becoming, but they are not the adornment that properly belongs to the church. But if the adversaries make worship consist in such matters, and not in the preaching of the gospel, in faith, and the conflicts of faith, they are to be numbered among those whom Daniel describes as worshipping their God with gold and silver. Daniel 11.38 They quote also from the Epistle to the Hebrews 5.1, 1, 
Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hence they conclude that since in the New Testament there are high priests and priests, it follows that there is also a sacrifice for sins. This passage particularly makes an impression on the unlearned, especially when the pomp of the priesthood, the garments of Aaron, since in the Old Testament there were many ornaments of gold, silver, and purple, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament are spread before the eyes. This resemblance deceives the ignorant, so that they judge that, according to the same manner, a ceremonial sacrifice ought to exist among us, which should be applied on behalf of the sins of others, just as in the Old Testament. Neither is the service of the masses and the rest of the polity of the Pope anything else than false zeal in behalf of the misunderstood Levitical polity. They have not understood that the New Testament is occupied with other matters, and that if such ceremonies are used for the training of the young, a limit must be fixed for them. And although our belief has its chief testimonies in the Epistle to the Hebrews, nevertheless the adversaries distort against us mutilated passages from this Epistle, as in this very passage, where it is said that every high priest is ordained to offer sacrifices for sins. Scripture itself immediately adds that Christ is high priest, Hebrews 5, 5-6, 5-10. The preceding words speak of the Levitical priesthood, and signify that the Levitical priesthood was an image of the priesthood of Christ. For the Levitical sacrifices for sins did not merit the remission of sins before God, they were only an image of the sacrifice of Christ, which was to be the one propitiatory sacrifice, as we have said above. Therefore the epistle is occupied to a great extent with the topic that the ancient priesthood and the ancient sacrifices were instituted not for the purpose of meriting the remission of sins before God or reconciliation, but only to signify the future sacrifice of Christ alone. For in the Old Testament it was necessary for saints to be justified by faith, derived from the promise of the remission of sins that was to be granted for Christ's sake, just as saints are also justified in the New Testament. From the beginning of the world it was necessary for all saints to believe that Christ would be the promised offering and satisfaction for sins, as Isaiah 53.10 teaches, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Since, therefore, in the Old Testament sacrifices did not merit reconciliation, unless by a figure, for they merited civil reconciliation, but signified the coming sacrifice, it follows that Christ is the only sacrifice applied on behalf of the sins of others. Therefore, in the New Testament, no sacrifice is left to be applied for the sins of others, except the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. They altogether err, who imagine that Levitical sacrifices merited the remission of sins before God, and, by this example, in addition to the death of Christ, require in the New Testament sacrifices that are to be applied on behalf of others. This imagination absolutely destroys the merit of Christ's passion and the righteousness of faith, and corrupts the doctrine of the Old and New Testaments, and instead of Christ makes for us other mediators and propitiators out of the priests and sacrificers who daily sell their work in the churches. Therefore, if anyone would thus infer that in the New Testament a priest is needed to make offering for sins, this must be conceded only of Christ. And the entire epistle to the Hebrews confirms this explanation. 
And if, in addition to the death of Christ, we were to seek for any other satisfaction to be applied for the sins of others and to reconcile God, this would be nothing more than to make other mediators in addition to Christ. Again, as the priesthood of the New Testament is the ministry of the Spirit, as Paul teaches, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it accordingly has but the one sacrifice of Christ, which is satisfactory and applied for the sins of others. Besides, it has no sacrifices like the Levitical, which could be applied ex opera operato on behalf of others. But it tenders to others the gospel and the sacraments, that by means of these they may conceive faith and the Holy Ghost, and be mortified and quickened, because the ministry of the Spirit conflicts with the application of an opus operatum. For unless there is personal faith and a life wrought by the Holy Spirit, the opus operatum of another cannot render me godly nor save me. For the ministry of the Spirit is that through which the Holy Ghost is efficacious in hearts, and therefore this ministry is profitable to others when it is efficacious in them and regenerates and quickens them. This does not occur by the application ex opere operato of the work of another on behalf of others. We have shown the reason why the Mass does not justify ex opera operato, and why, when applied on behalf of others, it does not merit remission, because both conflict with the righteousness of faith. For it is impossible that remission of sins should occur, and that terrors of death and sin be overcome by any work or anything except by faith in Christ, according to Romans 5.1, being justified by faith we have peace. In addition, we have shown that the scriptures which are cited against us in no way favor the godless opinion of the adversaries concerning the opus operatum. All good men among all nations can judge this. Therefore the error of Thomas is to be rejected, who wrote that the body of the Lord, once offered on the cross for original debt, is continually offered for daily offenses on the altar, in order that, in this, the church might have a service whereby to reconcile God to herself. The other common errors are also to be rejected, as that the Mass ex opere operato confers grace upon one employing it. Likewise, that when applied for others, even for wicked persons, provided they do not interpose an obstacle, it merits for them the remission of sins, of guilt and punishment. All these things are false and godless, and lately invented by unlearned monks, and obscure the glory of Christ's passion and the righteousness of faith. And from these errors infinite others sprang, as that the masses avail when applied for many, just as much as when applied individually. The sophists have particular degrees of merit, just as money-changers have grades of weight for gold or silver. Besides, they sell the mass as a price for obtaining what each one seeks, to merchants, that businesses may be prosperous, to hunters, that hunting may be successful, and infinite other things. Lastly, they apply it also to the dead. By the application of the sacrament, they liberate souls from the pains of purgatory, although without faith the mass is of service not even to the living. Neither are the adversaries able to produce even one syllable from the scriptures in defense of these fables, which they teach with great authority in the church. Neither do they have the testimonies of the ancient church, nor of the fathers. Therefore they are impious and blind people who knowingly despise and trample underfoot the plain truth of God. 
what the fathers thought concerning sacrifice. And since we have explained the passages of Scripture which are cited against us, we must reply also concerning the fathers. We are not ignorant that the Mass is called by the fathers a sacrifice, but they do not mean that the Mass confers grace ex opere operato, and that, when applied on behalf of others, it merits for them the remission of sins, of guilt and punishment. Where are such monstrous stories to be found in the fathers? But they openly testify that they are speaking of thanksgiving. Accordingly, they call it a Eucharist. We have said above, however, that a Eucharistic sacrifice does not merit reconciliation, but is made by those who have been reconciled, just as afflictions do not merit reconciliation, but are Eucharistic sacrifices when those who have been reconciled endure them. And this reply, in general, to the sayings of the fathers defends us sufficiently against the adversaries. For it is certain that these figments concerning the merit of the opus operatum are found nowhere in the fathers. But in order that the whole case may be the better understood, we also shall state those things concerning the use of the sacrament which actually harmonize with the fathers and scripture. Of the use of the sacrament and of sacrifice. Some clever men imagine that the Lord's Supper was instituted for two reasons. First, that it might be a mark and testimony of profession, just as a particular shape of hood is the sign of a particular profession. Then they think that such a mark was especially pleasing to Christ, namely, a feast to signify mutual union and friendship among Christians, because banquets are signs of covenant and friendship. But this is a secular view. Neither does it show the chief use of the things delivered by God. It speaks only of the exercise of love, which men, however profane and worldly, understand. It does not speak of faith, the nature of which few understand. The sacraments are signs of God's will toward us, and not merely signs of men among each other. And they are right in defining that sacraments in the New Testament are signs of grace. And because in a sacrament there are two things, a sign and the word, the word in the New Testament is the promise of grace added. The promise of the New Testament is the promise of the remission of sins, as the text, Luke 22.19, says, This is my body which is given for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Therefore the word offers the remission of sins. And a ceremony is, as it were, a picture or seal, as Paul, Romans 4.11, calls it, of the word, making known the promise. Therefore, just as the promise is useless unless it is conveyed by faith, so a ceremony is useless unless such faith is added as is truly confident that the remission of sins is here offered. And this faith encourages contrite minds. And just as the word has been given in order to excite this faith, so the sacrament has been instituted in order that the outward appearance meeting the eyes might move the heart to believe and strengthen faith. For through these, namely, through word and sacrament, the Holy Ghost works. And such use of the sacrament, in which faith quickens terrified hearts, is a service of the New Testament, because the New Testament requires spiritual dispositions, mortification, and quickening. For according to the New Testament, the highest service of God is rendered inwardly in the heart. And for this use Christ instituted it, since he commanded them thus to do in remembrance of him. 
For to remember Christ is not the idle celebration of a show, not something that is accomplished only by some gestures and actions, or one instituted for the sake of example, as the memory of Hercules or Ulysses is celebrated in tragedies. But it is to remember the benefits of Christ and receive them by faith, so as to be quickened by them. Psalm 111, 4-5 accordingly says, He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. For it signifies that the will and mercy of God should be discerned in the ceremony. But that faith which apprehends mercy quickens. And this is the principal use of the sacrament, in which it is apparent who are fit for the sacrament, namely terrified consciences, and how they ought to use it. The sacrifice, thank-offering, or thanksgiving also is added. For there are several ends for one object. After conscience, encouraged by faith, has perceived from what terrors it is freed, then indeed it fervently gives thanks for the benefit and passion of Christ, and uses the ceremony itself to the praise of God, in order by this obedience to show its gratitude, and testifies that it holds in high esteem the gifts of God. Thus the ceremony becomes a sacrifice of praise. And the fathers, indeed, speak of a twofold effect, of the comfort of consciences, and of thanksgiving or praise. The former of these effects pertains to the nature, the right use of the sacrament. The latter pertains to the sacrifice. Of consolation, Ambrose says, Go to him and be absolved, because he is the remission of sins. Do you ask who he is? Hear him when he says, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. This passage testifies that in the sacrament the remission of sins is offered. It also testifies that this ought to be received by faith. Infinite testimonies to this effect are found in the fathers, all of which the adversaries pervert to the opus operatum, and to a work to be applied on behalf of others. Although the fathers clearly require faith, and speak of the consolation belonging to every one, and not of the application. Besides these, expressions are also found concerning thanksgiving, such as that most beautifully said by Cyprian concerning those communing in the godly way. Piety, says he, in thanking the bestower of such abundant blessing, makes a distinction between what has been given and what has been forgiven. That is, piety regards both what has been given and what has been forgiven. That is, it compares the greatness of God's blessing and the greatness of our evils, sin and death, with each other, and gives thanks and so forth. And hence the term Eucharist arose in the church. Nor indeed is the ceremony itself the giving of thanks, ex opera operato, to be applied on behalf of others in order to merit for them the remission of sins and so forth, in order to liberate the souls of the dead. These things conflict with the righteousness of faith, as though without faith a ceremony can profit either the one performing it or others. Of the term Mass The adversaries also refer us to philology. From the names of the Mass they derive arguments which do not require a long discussion. For even though the Mass be called a sacrifice, it does not follow that it must confer grace ex opera operato or, when applied on behalf of others, merit for them the remission of sins, and so forth. 
Liturgia, they say, signifies a sacrifice, and the Greeks call the Mass liturgy. Why do they here omit the old appellation synaxis, which shows that the Mass was formerly the communion of many? But let us speak of the word liturgy. This word does not properly signify a sacrifice, but rather the public ministry, and agrees aptly with our belief, namely, that one minister who consecrates tenders the body and blood of the Lord to the rest of the people, just as one minister who preaches tenders the gospel to the people. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4.1, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, that is, of the gospel and the sacraments. And Second Corinthians 5.20, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Thus the term liturgia agrees aptly with the ministry. For it is an old word, ordinarily employed in public civil administrations, and signified to the Greeks public burdens, as tribute, the expense of equipping a fleet, or similar things, as the oration of Demosthenes, for Lepines testifies, all of which is occupied with the discussion of public duties and immunities. That is, he will say that some unworthy men, having found an immunity, have withdrawn from public burdens. And thus they spoke in the time of the Romans, as the rescript of Pertinax on the law of exemption shows. Even though the number of children does not liberate parents from all public burdens, and the commentary upon Demosthenes states that liturgia is a kind of tribute, the expense of the games, the expense of equipping vessels, of attending to the gymnasia, and similar public offices. And Paul, in Second Corinthians 9.12, employs it for a collection. The taking of the collection not only supplies those things which are wanting to the saints, but also causes them to give more thanks abundantly to God, and so forth. And in Philippians 2.25, he calls Epaphroditus a one who ministered to my wants, where assuredly a sacrificer cannot be understood. But there is no need of more testimonies, since examples are everywhere obvious to those reading the Greek writers, in whom liturgia is employed for public civil burdens or ministries. And on account of the diphthong, grammarians do not derive it from lite, which signifies prayers, but from public goods, which they call lita, so that litorgeo means I attend to, I administer public goods. Ridiculous is their inference that, since mention is made in the Holy Scriptures of an altar, therefore the Mass must be a sacrifice. For the figure of an altar is referred to by Paul only by way of comparison. And they fabricate that the Mass has been so called from an altar, Mitzbeah. What need is there of an etymology so far-fetched, unless it be to show their knowledge of the Hebrew language? What need is there to seek the etymology from a distance, when the term Mass is found in Deuteronomy 16.10, where it signifies the collections or gifts of the people, not the offering of the priest. For individuals coming to the celebration of the Passover were obliged to bring some gift as a contribution. In the beginning the Christians also retained this custom. Coming together, they brought bread, wine, and other things, as the canons of the apostles testify. Thence, 
a part was taken to be consecrated, the rest was distributed to the poor. With this custom they also retained Mass as the name of the contributions, and on account of such contributions it appears also that the Mass was elsewhere called Agape, unless one would prefer that it was so called an account of the common feast. But let us omit these trifles, for it is ridiculous that the adversaries should produce such trifling conjectures concerning a matter of such great importance. For although the Mass is called an offering, in what does the term favor the dreams concerning the opus operatum, and the application which they imagine merits for others the remission of sins? And it can be called an offering for the reason that prayers, thanksgivings, and the entire worship are there offered, as it is also called a Eucharist. But neither ceremonies nor prayers profit ex opere operato without faith, although we are disputing here not concerning prayers, but particularly concerning the Lord's Supper. Here you can see what rude asses our adversaries are. They say that the term Missa is derived from the term Misbeach, which signifies an altar. Hence we are to conclude that the Mass is a sacrifice, for sacrifices are offered on an altar. Again, the word liturgia, by which the Greeks call the Mass, is also to denote a sacrifice. This claim we shall briefly answer. All the world sees that from such reasons this heathenish and antichristian error does not follow necessarily, that the Mass benefits ex opera operato, sine bona motu utentis. Therefore they are asses, because in such a highly important matter they bring forward such silly things. Nor do the asses know any grammar. For missa and liturgia do not mean sacrifice. Missa in Hebrew denotes a joint contribution. For this may have been a custom among Christians, that they brought meat and drink for the benefit of the poor to their assemblies. This custom was derived from the Jews, who had to bring such contributions on their festivals. These they called Missa. Likewise, liturgia in Greek really denotes an office in which a person ministers to the congregation. This is well applied to our teaching, because with us the priest, as a common servant of those who wish to commune, ministers to them the holy sacrament. Some think that Missa is not derived from the Hebrew, but signifies as much as remissio, the forgiveness of sins. For the communion being ended, the announcement used to be made, Ita Missa est, depart, you have forgiveness of sins. They cite as proof that this is so, the fact that the Greeks used to say, Lais aphesis, which also means that they have been pardoned. If this were so, it would be an excellent meaning, for in connection with this ceremony forgiveness of sins must always be preached and proclaimed. But the case before us is little aided, no matter what the meaning of the word missa is. The Greek canon says also many things concerning the offering, but it shows plainly that it is not speaking properly of the body and blood of the Lord but of the whole service, of prayers and thanksgivings. For it says thus, When this is rightly understood, it gives no offense. For it prays that we be made worthy to offer prayers and supplications and bloodless sacrifices for the people. For he calls even prayers bloodless sacrifices. Just as also a little afterward, we offer, he says, this reasonable and bloodless service. 
for they explain this inaptly, who would rather interpret this of a reasonable sacrifice, and transfer it to the very body of Christ, although the canon speaks of the entire worship. And in opposition to the opus operatum, Paul has spoken of logike latreia, Romans 12.1, reasonable service, namely, of the worship of the mind, of fear, of faith, of prayer, of thanksgiving, and so forth. Of the Mass for the Dead Our adversaries have no testimonies and no command from Scripture for defending the application of the ceremony for liberating the souls of the dead, although from this they derive infinite revenue. Nor, indeed, is it a light sin to establish such services in the Church without the command of God, and without the example of Scripture and to apply to the dead the Lord's Supper, which was instituted for commemoration and preaching among the living, for the purpose of strengthening the faith of those who use the ceremony. This is to violate the second commandment by abusing God's name. For, in the first place, it is a dishonor to the gospel to hold that a ceremony ex opere operato, without faith, is a service reconciling God and making satisfaction for sins. It is a horrible saying to ascribe as much to the work of a priest as to the death of Christ. Again, sin and death cannot be overcome unless by faith in Christ, as Paul teaches, Romans 5.1, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And therefore the punishment of purgatory cannot be overcome by the application of the work of another. Now, we shall omit the sort of testimonies concerning purgatory that the adversaries have, what kinds of punishments they think there are in purgatory, what grounds the doctrine of satisfactions has, which we have shown above to be most vain. We shall only present this in opposition. It is certain that the Lord's Supper was instituted on account of the remission of guilt. For it offers the remission of sins, where it is necessary that guilt be truly understood. For what consolation would we have if forgiveness of sin were here offered us, and yet there would be no remission of guilt. And nevertheless it does not make satisfaction for guilt, otherwise the Mass would be equal to the death of Christ. Neither can the remission of guilt be received in any other way than by faith. Therefore the Mass is not a satisfaction, but a promise and sacrament that require faith. And, indeed, it is necessary that all godly persons be seized with the most bitter grief, shed tears of blood from anguish and sorrow, if they consider that the Mass has been in great part transferred to the dead, and to satisfactions for punishments. This is to banish the daily sacrifice from the Church. This is the kingdom of Antiochus, who transferred the most salutary promises concerning the remission of guilt and concerning faith to the most vain opinions concerning satisfactions. This is to defile the gospel, to corrupt the use of the sacraments. These are the persons, the real blasphemers, whom Paul has said, 1 Corinthians 11.27, to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, who have suppressed the doctrine concerning faith and the remission of sins, and, under the pretext of satisfactions, has devoted the body and blood of the Lord to sacrilegious gain. And they will at some time pay the penalty for this sacrilege. God will one day vindicate the second commandment, and pour out a great, horrible wrath upon them. 
Therefore we and all godly consciences should be on our guard against approving the abuses of the adversaries. But let us return to the case. Since the Mass is not a satisfaction, either for punishment or for guilt, ex opere operato, without faith, it follows that the application on behalf of the dead is useless. Nor is there need here of a longer discussion, for it is evident that these applications on behalf of the dead have no testimonies from the Scriptures. Neither is it safe without the authority of Scripture to institute forms of worship in the Church. And if it will at any time be necessary, we shall speak at greater length concerning this entire subject. For why should we now contend with adversaries who understand neither what a sacrifice, nor what a sacrament, nor what remission of sins, nor what faith is? Neither does the Greek canon apply the offering as a satisfaction for the dead, because it applies it equally for all the blessed patriarchs, prophets, apostles. It appears, therefore, that the Greeks make an offering as thanksgiving, and do not apply it as satisfaction for punishments. For, of course, it is not their intention to deliver the prophets and apostles from purgatory, but only to offer up thanks along and together with them for the exalted eternal blessings that have been given to them and us. Although they speak, moreover, not of the offering alone of the body and blood of the Lord, but of the other parts of the Mass, namely, prayers and thanksgiving. For after the consecration they pray that it may profit those who partake of it. They do not speak of others. Then they add, Yet we offer to you this reasonable service for those having departed in faith, forefathers, fathers, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and so forth. Reasonable service, however, does not signify the offering itself, but prayers and all things which are there transacted. Now, as regards the adversaries citing the fathers concerning the offering for the dead, we know that the ancients speak of prayer for the dead, which we do not prohibit, but we disapprove of the application ex opere operato of the Lord's Supper on behalf of the dead. Neither do the ancients favor the adversaries concerning the opus operatum, and even though they have the testimonies especially of Gregory or the moderns, we oppose to them the most clear and certain scriptures, and there is a great diversity among the fathers. They were men, and could err and be deceived. Although if they would now become alive again, and would see their sayings assigned as pretexts for the notorious falsehoods which the adversaries teach concerning the opus operatum, they would interpret themselves far differently. The adversaries also falsely cite against us the condemnation of Arius, who, they say, was condemned for the reason that he denied that in the Mass an offering is made for the living and the dead. They frequently use this dexterous turn, cite the ancient heresies, and falsely compare our cause with these, in order by this comparison to crush us. The asses are not ashamed of any lies, nor do they know who Arius was and what he taught. Epiphanius testifies that Arius held that prayers for the dead are useless. With this he finds fault. Neither do we favor Arius. But we, on our part, are contending with you who are defending a heresy manifestly conflicting with the prophets, apostles, and holy fathers, namely that the Mass justifies ex opera operato, that it merits the remission of guilt and punishments even for the unjust to whom it is applied, if they do not present an obstacle. 
of these pernicious errors which detract from the glory of christ's passion and entirely overthrow the doctrine concerning the righteousness of faith we disapprove there was a similar persuasion of the godless in the law namely that they merited the remission of sins not freely by faith but through sacrifices ex opera operato therefore they increased these services and sacrifices instituted the worship of baal in israel and even sacrificed in the groves in judah therefore the prophets condemn this opinion and wage war not only with the worshippers of baal but also with other priests who with this godless opinion made sacrifices ordained by god for this opinion inheres in the world and always will inhere namely that services and sacrifices are propitiations carnal men cannot endure that alone to the sacrifice of christ the honor is ascribed that it is a propitiation because they do not understand the righteousness of faith but ascribe equal honor to the rest of the services and sacrifices just as, therefore, in Judah, among the godless priests, a false opinion concerning sacrifices inhered, just as in Israel Baalitic services continued, and nevertheless a church of God was there which disapproved of godless services, so Baalitic worship inheres in the domain of the Pope, namely the abuse of the Mass, which they apply that by it they may merit for the unrighteous the remission of guilt and punishment. And yet, as God still kept his church, that is, some saints in Israel and Judah, so God still preserved his church, that is, some saints under the papacy, so that the Christian church has not entirely perished. And it seems that this Baalitic worship will endure as long as the reign of the Pope, until Christ will come to judge, and by the glory of his advent destroy the reign of Antichrist. Meanwhile, all who truly believe the gospel, that they may truly honor God and have a constant comfort against sins. For God has graciously caused his gospel to shine, that we might be warned and saved, ought to condemn these wicked services, devised contrary to God's command, in order to obscure the glory of Christ and the righteousness of faith. We have briefly said these things of the Mass, in order that all good men in all parts of the world may be able to understand that with the greatest zeal we maintain the dignity of the Mass, and show its true use, and that we have the most just reasons for dissenting from the adversaries. And we would have all good men admonished not to aid the adversaries in the profanation of the Mass, lest they burden themselves with other men's sin. It is a great cause and a great subject, not inferior to the transaction of the prophet Elijah, who condemned the worship of Baal we have presented a case of such importance with the greatest moderation, and now reply without casting any reproach. But if the adversaries will compel us to collect all kinds of abuses of the Mass, the case will not be treated with such forbearance. End of Article 12